That second song, I think, goes really well with what we're going to be talking about today. Because he lives, we no longer have to fear. Um, so the first week that we had the sabbatical, we had talked about what the church is. And last week, we had discussed what the church's role is in society. Today, our question is, what is the future of the peer, and how is the peer to move forward? Um, and in regards to the future of the peer, I can tell you this. I don't know. I don't have a clue. But we are going to explore that a little bit. Oh, can I get my slides up? <laughs> so I'm going to pray for us. Um, this is a little bit more of a confrontational sermon, and I, I look forward to giving it to you, but at the same time, I dread it, so I will pray over us today. Lord, God Almighty, you are the God who created all things. You created us, and you know us intimately. You know our strengths, and more importantly, you know our weakness. You know that we could never save ourselves on our own, Lord. And we invite you into this service, Lord. And I pray that each and every one of us, Lord, will take your word to heart, not with a defensive mind, but in humility, Lord. We thank you so much for today. And may your word touch our hearts. Amen. Amen. So... The pier has been along now. How long? Anybody know how many years the pier has been? Is it nine? It's a while. <laughs> um, and like any person trying to move forward in life, it's good to have a checkup every once in a while. So we can consider this kind of as the pier's welfare checkup. We're gonna. I am a rambler, so I apologize. <laughs> can I have the slides switched? I think it is good for us to get uh, a purpose statement so that we have a guideline to go through today. So by using the examples of Peter and a man by the name of Robert Falcon Scott, we'll explore the dangers of compromising our walk with Jesus and outreach due to fear of others' opinions. The congregation... Uh, that's for me. Never mind. <laughs> and if you could switch slides. <laughs> So if you, would if you would turn with me to Galatians 2, verses 11 through 21, and I will read that for us. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face. I'm sorry. It's up there. <laughs> I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. And when he arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised, but afterwards, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who, instead of the who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. And as a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And when I saw this, they were, when I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel, 
I said to Peter in front of all of the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow Jewish traditions? You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. Yet, we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ not by obeying the law, and we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. I could switch the slides. This is a powerful warning to people. And Peter needed this desperately. And we're going to explore the life of Peter and what led him up to this a little bit deeper. Um, for those who like to take notes, I have created a, a ser sermon points. So we have four points for this sermon. I pray that they go well. Um, <laughs> we're going to find out. Uh, switch slides. So before we jump into compromise, we should probably understand what compromise is. So... According to the English dictionary, compromising is settling for something less than for the sake of others. It's seeing an issue and finding a way to cohabitate, to cohabitate without confrontation. Compromise is not always a bad thing. For example, I have to compromise my love for fruity ice creams for Elizabeth's love for dark chocolate peanut butter ice creams. And Elizabeth has to make compromises when her husband wants to go to Civil War reenactments after church, and she may just want to go home. Not that that's happening today. But, um, <laughs> but in the Christian life, compromise is dangerous. Compromise, like frostbite, is painfully spreads through the body, and it eats away at the victim. At first, it's extremely painful. But when you do it, enough, you don't feel it anymore. It's not because it's good for you, it's because you're dying. Compromise has been an issue in the church since the very beginning. Adam and Eve made a compromise in their faith by agreeing to eat the fruit. So, I also really want this, and it looks good to eat. So, she took it. And Adam's compromise was, you know, I really should protect my wife and go crush the snake. But you know, I don't really want to. Instead, I'm going to stand here and watch. And ever since that compromise, all of human history has made horrendous decisions. Aaron on the mountain made a compromise for the people of Israel and made that golden calf, even though he knew what God had done. He had seen it time and time again. King Josiah made a compromise as well, and it cost him his life. He followed God to a T, but then he went to war because he, he wanted to on his own power, and it killed him. When we revert back to our old ways and our old identity of brokenness, it's like exposing our, bar, our body to the harsh, freezing winds. At first, it's painful, but as you're exposed for longer, it causes you immense damage and possible death. And all the while, you lose the ability to feel pain and begin to feel warm 
and peaceful, we can lie to ourselves. We can convince ourselves that what we're doing is okay. And Peter had done that as well. Uh, next slide. So let's talk a little bit more about Peter. Peter lived a life of compromise. Do you realize in the Gospels, we have zero account of Peter succeeding? Every single time we hear about Peter, it's usually because he's doing something wrong. <laughs> um, be that from rebuking Christ in Matthew 16, denying Christ three different times. Um, there are just countless different times that Peter does this. Peter loved Jesus, but he struggled when push came to shove to really remain grounded in Jesus. He was fearful of what other people thought of him. Peter would return to his old habits and forget who God had created him to be. And now we come to Galatians. Um, switch slides. We come back to Galatians. And ever since Pentecost, for those who don't know, after Jesus rose from the dead, uh, his church was set on fire in Acts 2. And the church uh, became a new creation at that point. And from that point on, a new Peter is seen one who's bold, who does not care about what other people think, and who stands on the word of God without fear. And this is the Peter that we see throughout Acts. So what changed for Peter in Galatians 2? Why had this bold Peter shrunk back to the old Peter? When the men of James had entered the congregation in Antioch, Peter became uncomfortable what would these Jews think of him? What would they tell the Jews in Jerusalem? What would happen? All of a sudden, Peter's number one was not Jesus anymore. Peter's number one was Peter. Peter wanted to defend Peter. And the problem with this type of compromise is that it drags other people down with it. We like to think our sin is just us. It affects only us. It doesn't. When you live your life for Christ, you are living Christ-like. What you do matters. And if you compromise, other people will follow you. Peter did what so many of us do. He went against his God-given conscience and knew Christ's identity because he was uncomfortable. Did Peter hate these Gentile believers? No. In fact, the, the verses before this, um, in Galatians 2, 1 through 10, we see that Peter in Jerusalem defended the Gentile believers. He boldly defended them in the face of this very, this very lie of circumcision. Yet for whatever reason, this moment, in this moment, he gave it up. We're going to explore a figure that probably a lot of you have never heard of before. And I think that he's a great person to put side by side with Peter and us to explore a little bit more. Oh, my slide's already there. There we go. <laughs> so Robert Falcon Scott, who the heck is this dude? Robert Scott was born in 1868 in Plymouth, England. Scott was a scrawny little kid. Um, 
had, didn't really have anything going for him. He lived in absolute squander and made something out of himself in the Navy, in the British Navy. And a couple of years later, he was asked to be the first person on Earth to go and explore interior Antarctica. Antarctica for that time was unknown to the world. It was only discovered really 50 years before he was even born, and no one had gone to go explore it. So Scott went on his first successful journey to the continent where he wintered in the most harsh continent on the planet. Him and his crew survived negative 90 degree wind chills, and his men also helped uh, bring to light several species from the Antarctic from Antarctica, including emperor penguins, leopard seals, and the largest animal on planet, the Antarctic blue whale. He had also mapped over 500 miles of the coast of Antarctica. Scott would eventually return to England from this first journey to the last continent as a hero. But society around him was not satisfied. Society around him, he had grown up in the British Empire, this empire who was known for conquer and conquest. And England had its heart set on reaching the South Pole first. And Scott, for a while, was a hero, but then they wanted to send him back. And he had no intention of going back. No one wants to go back to absolute misery when they come home. But he began to realize people didn't view him the same way anymore. All that ego that he had built up for himself was disappearing really fast. And he announced uh, in the year 1909 that he was going to do another journey to Antarctica, this time to reach the South Pole on foot. Scott and Peter would both end up making really poor decisions, really poor compromises. And we're going to explore some of those compromises. But I want us to get an idea of what dangerous compromise looks like in a real-world situation. Uh, next slide. Oh, this is, <laughs> this is my favorite picture. You, you know that seal is looking at that whale like, oh, no, <laughs> something bad's about to happen. So during Scott's second Antarctic journey in 1910, Scott and several of his crew were making a journey to kind of get a lay of the land before they made this incredible journey that would take them nearly two months, one way to complete. So they made this journey across what is known as the McMurdo Sound in early spring. In that, during that time, that bay is frozen solid down to 20 feet. Um, when they came back, they realized that the Antarctic went from a kind of bearable negative 40 degrees outside to a balmy negative eight. And what that meant was that the, o the Southern Ocean, the swells were starting to break up the sea ice. And they had two options. One, they could take a really, really risky journey across the sea ice with the possibility of getting stranded on the sea ice. Or they could take the much longer but significantly safer way across the bay on land. This was not ideal because A, it was all cliffs, and B, it was frozen sharp rocks. But it was by far safer. 
When Scott's men saw that this route was far too dangerous, uh, they wanted to turn around. But three of their men said, no, no, no. I have no desire to go across land. I can see the ship across the bay. I'm going, we're going to do it. They were so confident and so adamant about this that Scott compromised and said, okay, fine, you can go. <laughs> Just do it. I don't care. I don't want to deal with you guys right now. And not only did he allow them to go, but he allowed them to take a significant portion of their rations and of their equipment. Bad choice. Um, his men were so confident in their decision that they easily could have made that trip in one day, but they wanted to rest, so they pitched their tent on the sea ice. Bad idea. <laughs> And when they woke up the next morning, they heard a tremendous crack. And when they popped their heads out of their, their heads out of the tent, they realized the danger that they were in. The sea ice had broken up around them and become pack ice. And what that means is now all of this ice is in a thousand different pieces everywhere. And they were going to have to try to jump from ice to ice to ice, three miles back to shore. Um, but their situation is about to become far worse for them. Uh, waiting beyond the sea ice and the, for the pack ice to break was one of Antarctica's most powerful predators, the Antarctic killer whale. Um, these are 30 to 40 foot giants. Um, they're the undisputed predators of the Antarctic, and they are known to be some of the smartest creatures on the planet. They're so smart, in fact, that they wait for sea ice to break into pack ice so that they can go into the pack ice and find seals who have been trapped on this pack ice. As you can see here, this one has found one. And what they will then do is they will ram the ice into obliterate to get the seal off. Because that seal has nowhere else to go. <laughs> and the other problem with Antarctic killer whales, they've never seen people. And people look like really big seals. Scott's men now had to make a, a horrid journey from iceberg to iceberg to get to shore, all the while being stalked by one of the Antarctic's greatest predators. Every time they would jump to an iceberg, a killer whale would pop up behind them to make sure where it was, where they were, and then begin to ram the ice into obliterate. After six grueling hours of this, they finally made it to shore with none of their rations and none of their equipment. <laughs> Scott's compromise later in his journey would detriment him and cause him massive headaches. But we'll get to that a little bit later. And like Peter, Scott brought others into his compromise. It was not Scott who suffered the major brunt of this. It was his men who he allowed to do this. Uh, next slide. Now we need to bring ourselves into this as well. This week's question is how the peer should move forward. But in order to move forward, we need to make a self-evaluation to make sure we're prepared for the journey ahead. And like Scott and Peter, we have to change course or ignore the dangers and move forward anyway with huge, huge risk of failure. 
Oftentimes, compromise can go completely unnoticed because we've become so exposed and stuck in it that it feels normal, warm, and comfortable. But in reality, we are just being slowly eaten away. So let's put our compromise into our church. Let's put compromise into our church's context and see how compromise could manifest itself in our daily lives. I have no intention of trying to call people out with these. Um, these are just the ones that God put on my heart, and they're ones that I struggle with immensely. Compromise could look like a, sa- a lack of self-respect. I'm simply not good enough. I cannot do anything right. I must be stupid. I don't think God made me right. Giving in to sins. I cannot overcome this, so I might as well stop even trying. It really isn't a big deal. I don't need to do anything about it. Avoiding outreach. I can't possibly knock on that door. What are they going to think of me? Well, it's a Sunday afternoon, and I'd really like to have the Sunday evening off. I've had a long week. Avoiding community and hospitality. I can't compete with these people. I'm not enough. My house isn't impressive enough or clean enough for them. Those people aren't, are nothing like me. Why don't I invite those who are really like me? You become unforgiving. How could I possibly forgive her if she won't forgive me? What they did to me is so unforgivable that God understands that I can't possibly forgive them. Church clicks. I'm comfortable with these people, and I don't want to talk to new people or those unlike me, so I'm going to stick with these people. Anybody relate to anything in this list? All of them for me. (laughs) Um, This list could honestly go on and on and on, and each one of us could probably come up with 10 different compromises that we do on a daily basis. The point is that if we allow these compromises into our lives and aren't willing to deal with them, they'll just eat us away. We lose our effectiveness. For those who love hunting, if you have a bow, an arrow, and you do not take care of the bow or an arrow, is it really going to do you any good? No. You have it, but it's kind of garbage now. When we compromise, we exchange the solid rock of Christ for sea ice. We see the flat and straightforward, easy, comfortable way, and we take it, not realizing how much of a dangerous situation we're in. And like Scott's men, there is an enemy who wants to devour you, and he's waiting for you to make yourself vulnerable. And like an Antarctic killer whale, he has no power to reach you on solid ground. He has all the power to reach you if you put yourself on the sea ice. When you compromise, you are putting yourself at incredible risk. We now, and once we figure out that we're on this compromise sea ice, we have to navigate our way back to God's solid ground. God will accept us every single time. He forgives us. We're his children. But we do have to come back to him. And that's not an easy journey. 
I am not saying this to you as someone who does not struggle with compromise. Compromise has deeply affected my life. Um, Chuck probably knows this more than anyone. I am the greatest coward when it comes to knocking on doors. I despise it with a burning passion. Um, so much so that I regret to say I don't do it very often. My compromise and my lack of self-worth oftentimes make me a really crappy husband and a really crappy dad because I'm so worried about what my wife thinks of me and what others think of me as a dad that I lose sight of what actually matters as a husband and a father. To better show the effect of compromise, I'm going to do a little demonstration for you. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's not going to be comfortable for a lot of you. It's not comfortable for me. In fact, it makes me want to weep. Pastor Wayne does a fantastic job of highlighting all the people who've come to this church because of UCAN Ministries. And we are so grateful that you're here. It is an incredible testament to this church. But I want to highlight something else today. Um, and to better emphasize this, um, we're just going to sit one minute, one minute in silence. One minute, roughly 105 people died. How many of those people do you think went to heaven? Maybe 10? Maybe less? If we add up the total number of minutes in a week, we end up with a number of 10,080 minutes. That means that since last we met, roughly 1,058,400 people died. Out of all those people, how many went to heaven? Out of how many of those people in our community could we have reached if we knocked on their door, if we talked to them at work? if we said hi to our neighbor and checked on them, if we checked on each other in this church, how many? What would happen if each of us spent 60 minutes out of our 10,080 hours weekly to reach out to our neighborhood? Our congregation averages at roughly 70 to 80 people. That would mean 
we would on average, as a congregation, spend 4,800 minutes weekly reaching out to our community. With those numbers, why do we have so many empty chairs in our church? 60 minutes out of 10,000 is not a lot. And I'm not doing this to pressure you into UCAN ministries. There are a thousand different ways that we could reach into this community. But a lot of us, including myself, fear to make really bad decisions and to be comfortable and silent. So why is this sin such a huge issue, uh, such an easy excuse? Well, it leads us to make these compromises. Uh, and we have our next sermon point. <laughs> there we go. You can switch that one in a couple of seconds as well. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Let's explore what the root of compromise is. Oh, switch the other one, yeah. Yeah. For those who need to write it down, we'll leave it for a sec. We can switch it back then. Other way. <laughs> yep, there we go. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm a great communicator. <laughs> Let's explore what the root of compromise is. According to a number of different researches from the university, can you remember the university's name and I didn't write it down? Anyway, um, the fear of others' opinions is generally the root of much compromise. Insecurity is another word for it. And we can define insecurity as lack of confidence, second-guessing one's position, anxiety about oneself, and focusing on the thoughts of others. How many can relate to that? I sure can. I hate thinking about what other people think of me, and it dominates my mind very often. The consistent outcome of insecurity is vulnerability. When we second-guess ourselves, bad things tend to happen. And as we discussed, it can make us very easy uh, to be picked off by predators. Um, I love nature documentaries. Love them to death. My favorite thing on the planet, other than my wife and son. I digress. Um, but every time you watch one of these nature documentaries, the poor little deer or whatever gets eaten because he made a decision to compromise his safety to do something else. And that is generally when a predator strikes. When we allow insecurity into our life and the thought of others and the thought of our own position and that we're not good enough, we make ourselves easy prey for our enemy who seeks to destroy us. And when we live in insecurity as believers, it's just like Scott's men choosing the sea ice over the difficulties of the shoreline. We think it's easier, but it's not. And our enemy comes to knock us off. So as we continue to talk about this, know that we're all in this together. Each and every one of us struggles with this. 
Each and every one of us has a different struggle of it, but it has all the same roots. So let's now dive into our two examples of Scott and Peter and see what each of their outcomes are. I'm going to start with Robert Falcon Scott. An amazing man. Accomplished things that really no one else could. He had his own struggles, though. Throughout his life, Scott dealt with crippling depression that affected his leadership and decision-making skills. And he would often refer to this, which Churchill would later use for himself, as his black dog. His depression would follow him around and stalk him, waiting for him to make a bad choice or to mess up, and that it would pounce on him. He was affected most often by this in his leadership because he was so afraid of what his men would think of him that he would stumble in his words and stumble in his decisions and second-guess himself constantly. They would drive his men mad. But when he was confident and secure in himself, he was one of the best leaders of his day. This, this fear would inevitably uh, lead to his failure which we'll get to in a little bit. Scott oftentimes would make very hasty decisions in his anxiety. And this trip, this second journey to the Antarctic was one of those. It was extremely rushed in planning, and he needed the approval of others, so he did it anyway. He needed the approval of his nation. And so once again, Scott met an another journey to Antarctica to claim the South Pole for the British crown. Uh, next slide. In the year 1911, Robert Falcon Scott and his Terra Nova crew prepared for the journey that would take them nearly two months one way. Can you imagine walking two months in oftentimes five to six foot deep snow when the weather outside has 200 mile, 200 mile an hour wind it averages at 50, minus 50, and oftentimes there's no sun for 16 to 20 hours a day. That sounds horrible. Scott was not anticipating something, though, and it would throw him off and make his anxiety significantly worse. Unbeknownst to him, Norway was also planning to reach the South Pole. <laughs> and Scott having reached the South Pole, now realized he would have to race to the South Pole. Not against another per team on foot, but against a team on dog sleds. And who also... <laughs> how, did he, how did he know that? How did he learn that? Uh, he was in the middle of... They saw their boat. <laughs> um, unfortunately for Scott, the Norway team also had another lucky break. Their sea ice, where they were trying to reach the South Pole, had broken up, meaning that their team was 200 miles closer to the pole, which only fed Scott's anxiety. It was so cold on their walks to, on their hike to the Antarctic that their jackets would freeze to the poses wherever they came out of their tents. Their boots would freeze, and they could, it would take them nearly two hours to get their boots off. And after two grueling months of not only 
walking in this misery, but also crossing the Antarctic mountain range with averages at 14,000 feet and crossing the Beardmore Glacier with some of the caverns in that glacier are nearly a mile and a half deep. Scott's men reached the South Pole. An incredible feat. And Scott's men were enthusiastic, happy, and beyond words because they knew that they were going to come home and bring back amazing news for their men. But in one moment, their joy and triumph turned to depression, anxiety, and dissatisfaction as they stared upon the Antarctic Plateau with the Norwegian flag, waving tall and proud. But before we finish our adventure with Captain Scott, let's return to Peter. So now we're going to move on. Uh, next slide, please. Where'd my slides go? Anyway. <laughs> Peter was clearly changed after his Antioch fiasco. Peter listened to Paul's warning. He didn't get mad at Paul for calling him out on his sin, but rather he changed. As not more than a decade later, Peter would write two letters to the churches where he addressed false teachers in standing firm in Christ through suffering. Peter stood firm in Christ. He learned from this. Peter recognized from a lifetime of compromise that he would never meet the expectations of others. Peter, named the rock by Christ, realized that his true foundation was in Christ, not Peter. Jesus called Peter the rock because Peter's rock was Jesus, not himself. Every time Peter failed in the Gospels, Christ was there to pull him back up. And that sometimes involved Christ giving him some very stern warnings. Get behind me, Satan. Peter, why did you doubt, you of little faith? And I'm sure the hardest one for Peter to take was seeing Christ after he had denied him three times. But every single time that Peter failed, Christ accepted him. Christ wasn't judging him for his bad decision, but he accepted him as a true father does. The accomplishment that Jesus did on the cross completely eliminated Peter's efforts from the picture. He no longer had to worry about what other people thought of him because the only person that mattered loved him so much to die for him, and he knew it. And now, Peter no longer had to prove himself. He no longer had to try to prove himself to Christ that he was needed or worthy or wanted. He knew he was fully wanted. He didn't need to worry about the opinions of others. He no longer had to try to, to fight for his own happiness in this world as a fisherman because he had complete joy, complete hope, completeness in Jesus. 
I'm going to read on in our passage in Galatians. I'm going to read Galatians 16 through 21. Or, I'm sorry, 17 through 21. But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ. And then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean that Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. Rather, I am a sinner if I try to rebuild the old system of law. I already tore that down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there is no need for Christ to die. Could any of, has any of us been successful in trying to make us feel happy and secure on our own power? No. no. Have any of us gotten our happiness successfully uninterrupted from the thoughts and good fortunes of others? No. Why do we return to it so often then? Why is this such a sin? Why? Why? Why do we think that we know better than Christ? When Christ has said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I love you forever, you are my child who I have adopted, and you will spend eternity with me. If Christ is the one knocking on that door, and I'm just the vessel, or if Christ is the one talking to that coworker, and I'm just the vessel, does that change your mindset on it? You can never reach those people, but Christ can. I don't have to be afraid of what they can think of me because they can destroy this body. They can tear me down mentally and verbally. It doesn't matter. I have complete security in the one who's created me. Our lives are like an Antarctic expedition. We live in a very hostile world that seeks to destroy us. If we expose ourselves to the elements of this world on our own power, we will die very quickly. We need a leader to walk before us in bold and unimpeded confidence. Someone who loves us, who knows us, and doesn't care what we think about them. And a, a leader who isn't leading us into destruction, but who's leading us to eternal life. Scott's expedition ended in a frozen wasteland, and it started in a frozen wasteland. Ours starts in this frozen wasteland, but it ends in the equivalence of Hawaii. And I'm not saying that this is going to be an easy journey. This world is incredibly hostile. And you're going to suffer great loss. You're going to suffer a lot of heartache and a lot of judgmental looks from other people. But this world doesn't define you anymore. If you, don't, if you stop looking at your leader and stop listening 
to his commands, but not only listening to his commands, but also heeding them and walking forward. You will die. Switch slides. We're going to finish our journey with Scott. I'm going to read a passage to you from 2 Chronicles 32, 7 through 8. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria or his mighty army. For there is a power far greater on our side. He might have a great army, but they are merely men. We have the Lord, our God, to help us and to fight our battles for us. Hezekiah's words greatly encouraged the people. I I read this passage um, to make this, once again, a comparison between Peter and Scott. Um, We can never overcome our insecurities on our own. Um, Peter learned that. Peter very much learned that he was not enough for Peter. But we are now going to on the flip side of that, what happens when we don't give up our identity, our insecurities. Once Scott Scott saw that dreaded Norwegian flag flapping over the pole, his black dog came for him. The thoughts of his failure began to dominate his rock leader. He led them in circles in circles. So a journey that should have been finished after two months of, from reaching the pole to reaching the Terra Nova ship, it should have been two months. They were now in their third month. And the real danger of his men's compromise on the sea ice with the equipment and food was starting to become real as they ran out of food. Scott was already far demoralized and had no hope or motivation for his men. One of his four men had already died on the way back. And somewhere between March 19th and March 29th, 1911, the wind in the Antarctic uh, reached records at 419 miles an hour. Uh, it also reached the coldest temperature ever recorded in the Antarctic at negative 125. Um, Scott made a compromise once again. Instead of pushing on to try to rescue his remaining men, he gave up. They pitched their tents for their last time. And they died. No one ever heard of them again. And what made this all the more tragic for them, they were only 12 miles from rescue. Because they gave up hope, because they gave into insecurity, because they gave in to compromise, they died. 
To this day, Scott and his four polar explorers are considered heroes in England. Their amazing feat of walking on foot across the Antarctic continent is one of the greatest examples of human endurance on the planet and has never, in my, to my knowledge, been done in the same way. But it ended in failure. There's no way of getting around that. It failed, and it cost four men their lives. Next slide, please. We're going to move on to our last point, a Christ-centered confidence. Uh, next slide as well. Scott's end in tragedy, like so many of our failures, could have easily been avoided if he didn't compromise. If he focused on his mission, if he was a good leader and didn't allow his men to compromise, they would have made it. But his compromise killed him. We as the peer have two choices as we move forward into our next stage of life. We've started this expedition with Christ, and we can either choose timidity and fear and never grow, or walk in confidence in Christ with a guaranteed outcome. The reality of all of this is, if we continue to compromise, if we continue to sit here idly and comfortably and don't reach into our neighborhoods and don't deal with the sin inside of us, we're doomed. We, like Scott, will fail right at the doors of success. God has blessed the peer with numerous ways for us to grow in our God-focused confidence. For some of us, that means overcoming our shyness and greeting at the door. Um, for others, like myself, it's courageously knocking on a door or speaking to a neighbor or a coworker. And for some of us, it's dealing with the dreaded children. And maybe that means you begin to lead your own type of ministry. You start these ministries. Each and every one of us is a leader here. And we have responsibilities. The point is this. If we don't take courage in Christ and walk forward as a church, we will never survive in this world. We will become lost, disoriented, and perish. If we stick to our current ways like Scott, it won't go well. Jesus is encouraging each and every one of us, and he has, giving us, he has given us his word, his orders. And we can, we can hear his words and orders all day long, but it doesn't really matter if you can hear an order if you don't listen to it. So, uh, next slide, please. Our conclusions is, to compromise is to trust in ice instead of solid ground and become vulnerable. The fear of others will always lead to immobility. We must recognize our need for Jesus, and we must walk forward in confidence in our leader. And I'm going to read one last passage for us. This is from Hebrews 10, 
31 through 39. It is a terrible thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Think on those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful, even though it meant terrible suffering. And sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and were even beaten. And sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail. And when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. So do not throw away this, confidence, this confident trust in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings you. Patient endurance is what you need now so that you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all that he has promised. For in just a little while, the coming one will come in no delay, and my righteous ones will live by faith. But I will take no pleasure in anyone who turns away. But we are not like those who turn away from God. In their own destruction, we are the faithful ones whose souls are saved. If we continue to follow after Captain Jesus... We are guaranteed success. But if we turn away from him, we're guaranteed failure. I encourage us as a church to continue to follow him, to boldly stand with our God with no compromise. Listen to his commands, but also obey them. And like we discussed last week, we possess eternal life, so let our possession turn into action. I encourage each of us to pray this week for God to reveal the compromise in our own hearts and to give them over to him because we never can deal with them on our own. And silence is not an answer. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you so much. We thank you, Lord, that you've even allowed us to go on this expedition. You never promised that it would be easy. In fact, you promised the opposite, that this would be the hardest thing we'd ever do in our lives, Lord. Each and every one of us has the choice, Lord, to follow after you or to not, to live a life of compromise or to live a life of confidence. Lord, may each of us walk out of this building with a confidence that comes from you. May we run this race as one who knows he's going to win. And Lord, pray, we pray against our evil enemy, Lord, who seeks to knock us off when we are in our weakest points, to devour us and to take us further and further from your truth. We thank you so much for your goodness. Lord, may you come soon, and may this expedition come to an end soon. We love our church, Lord, and we pray for our pastor. 
May we come out of this sabbatical anew, set a fire for you with no compromise. Amen.